In a recent episode of Steve Hilton's The Next Revolution on Fox News Channel, Jason Chaffetz and Tommy Lahren shared their thoughts on a convention of the states. I hate it. I hate it. I absolutely think it's a disastrous. I don't believe that the Constitution is a living, breathing document that needs to just go to convention. Hey, let's go change the whole thing. That's I think very it, dangerous. It, it's yeah. a very dangerous way to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think it sounds good in theory, but I think in practice it would be a disaster. Look at the difficulty that we have with our existing constitution and our existing government. There are a lot of people out there that are opposed to this. It scares them. The idea that you don't know what the rules are going to be if you have one of these. And, and that's, what's, that's what's dangerous about this. This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free. So in the opinion of Jason Chaffetz and Tommy Lahren, we are to avoid a convention of the states at all costs. Their reasoning? We need to run away in fear because there are no rules and we can't control a convention. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, and I'd like to focus in this podcast on Jason Chaffetz's comment about there are no rules for a convention of the states, because it's simply not true. I can think of, off the top of my head, at least six rules that apply, and I'd like to discuss those in today's podcast. So let me briefly list the six rules before going into them in detail. First of all, from Article 5 itself, we know that two-thirds of the states, or 34, must agree on the need for a convention in the first place. And this is a high bar because it's never been crossed in our history. Secondly, the states must agree on the subject matter of the convention. Third, there's the call, the wording in the application for an Article 5 convention that talks about the subject matter, and that has to be respected. Fourth, the individual states will give their commissioners instructions for what they are allowed to vote for and what they are not allowed to vote for at the convention. The fifth rule, one state, one vote, at least at the beginning of the convention. Now, technically, the convention could vote to change that uh, to proportional voting or something else like that, but that is so unlikely. It's never happened at previous conventions, and it would mean a large majority of states will be willing to give up some of their power to the remaining states. And finally, number six, it takes 38 states to ratify any proposed amendment that comes out of an Article 5 convention of the states. So contrary to Jason Chaffetz's understanding that there are no rules regarding a convention of the states, there are six that I was able to list just off the top of my head. Let's go through those in a little more detail. Uh, the first one, as I said, 34 states must agree that an Article 5 convention is necessary. That's two-thirds of the states, and it's not an easy bar to pass. 
It's going to take a lot of effort as, as we are learning at the Convention of States project to get to that magic number of 34. Currently, we have 12 states that have approved applications, so we're a little more a third of the way there, but there's still a lot more work ahead of us. Secondly, the states must agree on the subject matter. So it's not just that at least 34 states have to call for or request a convention of any kind on any topic. They do not aggregate. The requirement is the language, the operative language, has to be essentially the same in each of those 34 applications. So competing Article 5 movements cannot group their resources to get to 34 for a call. So the Balanced Budget Amendment Task Force or Term Limits USA cannot get together with Convention of States and say, hey, between us we've got 34. You have to have that agreement on subject matter because that subject matter turns into the third rule, the call. So that defines the subject matter for the Convention of States, and it is just paramount in determining what the convention can discuss and what it cannot. Now, I want to spend some time digging deeply into this issue of the call because that is at the root of this myth that a convention would be a runaway, and more specifically, the myth that the initial Constitutional Convention of 1787 was a runaway. So if you're going to call it a runaway, you have to ask yourself the question, runaway from what? And for a convention to be a runaway, it has to ignore or run away from the, both the call of the convention and the commissions that the individual commissioners arrive with, the instructions that they get from the states. Now, the myth that the Constitutional Convention of 1787 was a runaway starts with a false understanding of what the call was. And most commonly in establishing this myth, it's thought that the call was a resolution that was passed by the Confederation Congress at the time. Now, at this point, I should note that I am relying heavily on a paper from the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, authored by Michael Ferris, one of the co-founders of the Convention of States Project. And that paper is entitled, Defying Conventional Wisdom. The Constitution was not the product of a runaway convention. And as you might expect, I'm going to include a link to this article in the show notes and I would highly encourage you to read it. It's just fascinating reading on the convention and how it got started. So back to this false call that Congress issued. This was a, a resolution of the Confederation Congress on February 21st of 1787. And let me just read this to you. Resolve that, in the opinion of Congress, it is expedient that on the second Monday in May, next convention of delegates who shall have been appointed by the several states be held in Philadelphia for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation and reporting to Congress and the several legislatures such alterations and provisions therein as shall when agreed to in Congress and confirmed by the states, render the federal constitution adequate 
to the exigencies of the government and of the preservation of the Union. Now, I know this was quite a bit, but I want to point out a couple of key phrases here. The first is, for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. Now, if you believe that this is the call for the convention that created our Constitution, it would be obvious that it was a runaway convention because this stipulates that it's for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. But as we'll prove in a moment, this was not the official call. Now, a couple of other things in here. Um, it kind of quotes the process that was in Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation for making changes to those articles. And that is that such provisions therein shall, when agreed to in Congress and confirmed by the states, render the federal constitution or make changes to it. So the way the process worked to change the Articles of Confederation was that any changes had to be submitted to Congress, and once Congress approved of the changes, then it had to be approved by 100% of the states. Now the final phrase that I want you to get used to, because you're going to hear this a lot, is the ending phrase here, render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of the government and the preservation of the union. Now to understand why this is not the actual call for the convention, we have to look at things in sequential order. The first thing that happened is the Virginia legislature called for a convention in Annapolis and they did so uh, to address some of the faults that they saw in the Articles of Confederation. And a number of states agreed uh, to participate once Virginia called it. So the way a typical convention was run is one of the states could call for a convention, state the purpose, and submit that call to the rest of the states. And then as long as enough states said, yes, this is legitimate, we're going to join in, we're going to send folks, once they got to a quorum, which is a majority of the states, then the convention could go to work. Well, this didn't happen with the Annapolis Convention. Only five states showed up. So the commissioners at that convention felt that they did not have the moral authority to act because there was not a majority of the states represented. What they did, however, was sent a recommendation back to the state legislatures. And their recommendation was that they get together for another convention to devise such further provisions as shall appear to them necessary to render the constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the union. Now, does that sound kind of familiar? To render the constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the union? That was the wording used in the false call or the resolution that Congress was to pass a number of months later. That's where they got the wording, is from the Annapolis Convention recommendation. So what happened next is Virginia called for the convention recommended by the Annapolis Convention. This was in November of 1786. And Virginia commissioned seven delegates who were appointed with the power, you're going to have to get used to this phrase, to render the federal constitution adequate 
to the exigencies of the Union. Shortly thereafter, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Delaware, and Georgia all approved similar resolutions and instructing their delegates that they were empowered to devise such further provisions as shall appear necessary to render the Constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies thereof. That was New Jersey's uh, instructions. The other states were all very similar. The one thing that all of these states had in common is there was no mention of the Articles of Confederation in the instructions to the delegates or in the call. Now, it was not until after these six states commissioned delegates to the convention that Congress made their resolution in February of 1787, which many people mistakenly think is the call for the convention, but it was not. It was Virginia that called the convention without the restriction of limiting changes only to the Articles of Confederation. The next state to commission delegates was Massachusetts, and their delegates were instructed to solely amend the Articles of Confederation to render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of the government and the preservation of the Union. So they, Massachusetts followed the model of that false call from the Confederation Congress. Next, New York, were given, their delegates were given the same restriction. So Massachusetts and New York had a commission that required they could only modify the Articles of Confederation. After that, South Carolina, Connecticut, Maryland, and New Hampshire all commissioned delegates with the instructions that they could make all such alterations, clauses, articles, provisions as may be thought necessary to render the federal constitution entirely adequate to the actual situation and future good government of the confederated states. That was South Carolina's call. So we have a clear set of instructions for 10 of the 12 states that showed up for the convention that they just needed to render the federal constitution, the constitution of the federal government, adequate for the ex exigencies of the Union. It was just New York and Massachusetts who were prohibited from doing anything beyond modifying the Articles of Confederation. And by the way, you may notice one state is missing. That would be Rhode Island, which did not participate in the convention. So I hope I've clearly established here that if the convention were to be a runaway, it would, ha it would have to run away from the instructions of rendering the federal government adequate for the exigencies of the Union, and it would not have to be limited to just modifying the Articles of Confederation except for the commissioners from Massachusetts and New York. They were not authorized to go beyond modifying the Articles of Confederation. So here are a couple of things that happened at the convention which demonstrate a remarkable fidelity of the de delegates to both the call and their commissions from their states. So on the second Monday in May, which was May 8th of 1787, the convention started, but there was a problem. There was not a quorum until May 25th. So the few delegates that showed up just sat and waited. 
Now that is paying fidelity to some of the rules, isn't it? We can't start our work until we have a quorum. And they honored that. The next order of business was uh, to elect George Washington as president of the convention. And then the next order of business was for each state to produce its credentials. The delegates to the convention read through the commissions for each state to make sure they understood the limitations that each state placed on its commissioners. So here are a couple of examples of what was found. Delaware instructed its commissioners that it could not vote for anything that deviated from the one state, one vote waiting in the federal government. Also, New York was required to have all three of its commissioners present to vote. If there were only two or one there, let's say, they were prohibited from voting. And the practice was when a new commissioner arrived, the very first thing that was done was examination of their credentials and reading of their commission to make sure those rules were followed. Another example of the delegates' fidelity to the call and the commission was that in the commission of every one of the delegates and in the call, the word federal constitution was in there. So they took great care for any proposals to make sure that they understood they preserved federalism or that division of power in the federal government. Uh, In fact, James Madison had to defend the Virginia plan a number of times against the charge that it was not sufficiently federal in character. And when it came to a vote for representation, uh, the commission from Delaware prevailed. That's why we have a Senate which preserves one vote per state because of that commission from the Delaware delegation. And later, when Commissioners Lansing and Yates of New York left the convention for good, Alexander Hamilton stayed on and participated in the debates but New York never cast another vote in the convention, being faithful to that commission that all three had to be present for a vote. So what I hope I've demonstrated here is the remarkable fidelity and integrity demonstrated by the founders in respecting both the call topic for the convention and the commissions which each delegation arrived with. That was number four of the rules. I know we've uh, gone down quite a bunny trail here, but let's get back on track. Number five is we know that once the convention meets, one state, one vote is the rule, at least initially. Now, technically, it's possible for the uh, convention to vote and change to perhaps a proportional voting or something like that, but it's highly uh, unusual if that would happen. There's no record of a convention that has done that in the past, and it would take a large majority of states willing to give up their power and reduce their strength in voting, and I just don't see that happening. But to Jason Chaffetz, I just want to point out that is a rule right now. And then finally, it takes 38 states to ratify any proposed amendment that comes out of an Article 5 convention of the states. And we know that this is a rule that is well respected and has been consistently followed. 
There have been 33 proposed amendments sent from Congress to the states for ratification, 27 of which, which have been ratified. Finally, I'd like to throw out one more observation to allay any fears of a runaway convention or some kind of crazy amendment getting through the ratification process. If you think about it, we have had an open constitutional amending convention since the implementation of the Constitution. And I'm talking about Congress. They're in session all the time, and at any time, they can propose amendments to the Constitution. Would you like to guess how many proposed amendments have been introduced in Congress since the ratification of our Constitution? It's 11,000. Now, remember those numbers, 11,000 amendments introduced into Congress for debate. 33 have passed through Congress to go to the states for ratification, and 27 have been ratified. That's a 99.75% failure rate. That means for any amendment that may be proposed to be discussed at an amending convention, the probability of that amendment making it through the process and becoming a ratified amendment to the Constitution is one quarter of one percent. I just don't understand why that's something to fear. So to all of those like Jason Chaffetz and Tommy Lairn who fear a convention of the states for proposing amendments, I can think of no better words to leave you with than those of our founder, Mark Meckler, as he closed that very same interview. I would encourage you to stand with the founders who didn't act out of fear, they acted out of courage. Have the courage to stand. This is the Free to be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The first thing that you'll want to do at conventionofstates.com is to learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition to let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends.